It's a hard one. Yeah. Well, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you this summer uh, and walking through Genesis. It's been really rich and meaningful for my soul. Um, every single story, if you didn't know this, um, really is connected very um, intimately to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, so when God calls Abraham and blesses him, he says, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And uh, he makes all these promises to him. And then every story after that, you see that being fulfilled in different ways. Uh, in that original blessing, God says to Abraham that he's going to bless the nations through him. And here in these two chapters, that's what you begin to see. God blessing nations uh, through Abraham. And I'm just curious this morning if you have ever felt like an outsider. Have you ever felt like an outsider in your life? Have you ever been like in a social setting where it seems like the entire group of people that you're around shares something that you don't have? It could be like a status that you don't have. It could be a history together that you don't have. Um, it could be uh, a certain kind of, of memories or friendship or experiences or, or whatever. You could fill in the blank. You've been in a setting where you just feel like you're, you're on the outside looking in. Maybe some of you this morning feel that way as you gathered with us here, right? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Um, when I was in middle school, I was reflecting on this this week. When I was in middle school, which is rough for pretty much everybody, um, uh, it was really popular to own silver tabs, okay? It was like Levi's silver tab jeans, okay? So uh, these jeans didn't have the red tab that Levi's have. They had the silver tab. It was like a white-looking tab thing, okay? And I'm not kidding. This was like the thing. It was like the big deal, and so if you own these jeans, which were like, what meant you kind of had some money because they were like 40 bucks, which back when I was a kid, inflation, that was a lot more, okay? And uh, nonetheless, like you would, you would we kind of check out each other's booties, all right? I'm just being honest. People walk by and you're like, oh, they got silver tabs. And you're like, oh, they're cool. And then if you didn't, you know, then you felt like a big outsider. I mean, believe it or not, even if you were wearing Wranglers or whatever, whatever brand of jeans it, it was at all, like you were just made an outsider right away. I'm being honest, like this was crazy. And so I, my family didn't have money. I didn't own any silver tabs. So we're always feeling like an outsider. I remember one year I like saved up for a year and I bought silver tabs. And I, no joke, wore those jeans every single day. I didn't care that people saw those jeans on me every day. I wore those jeans every single day because I wanted people to look at my booty and say, he is an insider, right? To some degree, I wanted people to know that, that I was tired of being on the outside looking in. I wanted to be an insider, just like them. Now, this sounds ridiculous to you. It sounds ridiculous to me now, but it was real back then. Like, this was real life, okay? It, it's hard being an outsider, isn't it? It's awkward being an outsider, just when you don't feel like you fit in. It's not a place that we like to be. And you begin to wonder sometimes when you're an outsider if anybody even notices you. Guys, in our passage this morning that was read for us, we have three different narratives. And in each narrative, the climax of the story comes at the moment when we see God loving the outsider. The climax of every story, that's what you see. This motif of the insider-outsider is very strong here, and it's really interesting because you have Abraham who is an insider in the sense that God is his God, like he's the one that God's going to bless and bless the world through. He is an ultimate insider with God, but he's actually also an outsider 
because he's a sojourner in a land that's not his. He's an outsider. He's not a part of that culture. He's visiting, right? He's trying to find his place. But then you have this king, Abimelech. You have Ishmael and Hagar, these people who are outsiders. I mean, just consider Abimelech, this king of the Philistines, all right? He's like the ultimate insider in the sense that this is his land. This is his kingdom, right? He is the insider. He's the king. But he's also an outsider because he, he doesn't know God in the way that Abraham knows God. He's the ultimate outsider in that sense. So the definition of an outsider in our story is someone who isn't a part of the people or the nation of God. That's what an outsider is in our story. But God shows us his heart for these people, and he shows us how he desires to use his people to make a positive impact on other peoples and nations that do not know him. And so in each story, guys, we see a glimpse of the character of God, and we see how he graciously treats outsiders through his people. And so our roadmap, I just put it on the screen for you so you could follow along uh, if you're a note taker especially. It's a little wordy, but it's the best I could do, okay? I tried to whittle this down. But in the first story, we see that our sovereign God brings healing to the outsider. In the second story, we see our Savior God brings hope to the outsider. In our third story, we see our everlasting God brings peace to the outsider. And I just want to ask you, how does this practically even change your life? Does this mean anything for you today? And I suggest to you, it will radically change everything about you, okay? So first, the first story is our sovereign God brings healing to the outsider. We see this in this narrative of Abimelech and Abraham in chapter 20. And so right away, when you look at this story, we see right away that Abraham is is at it again. He's doing the same thing that we saw him do back in chapter 12, Right? He, he's kind of one of those guys that you've probably done this before where you hurt somebody, you do something wrong to someone, you say, I promise I'll never do it again. And then next week you're doing it again. You're like, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, right? This is what Abraham's doing. He's in a foreign land ruled by powerful people and he gets scared. He gets scared for his life. And though, even though Sarah's like 90 years old, um, we, we, we've learned this, Abraham married up, okay? Because he goes into these places and he's like, Sarah is so beautiful, they're going to take her and they're going to kill me, all right? And so he, even at 90 years old, he's still worried about this. And so instead, in order to spare his own life, he makes Sarah tell this little white lie to this king of the Philistines, and he gives Sarah to him as this sort of bride. Guys, this is not good, Okay, this is a, a big problem because remember, God promised that he was going to bring a miraculous birth through the womb of Sarah, through Abraham and Sarah. So this is not good because Sarah's supposed to have this baby with Abraham. How's that going to happen if she's with a different man? Okay, so this is a big problem, but have no fear, you guys, because God is sovereign. He is sovereign. We see that God shows up in Abimelech's dream. We see that in verse 3. And he warns Abimelech of what has just happened, of how he's been tricked. And and, and the text goes out of the way to let us know that Abimelech hasn't been with Sarah in an intimate way. You see that in verse 4. It's like rated G for you. It says, he had not approached her, okay? But uh, he declares his innocence before God. He's like, God, I haven't even approached her, right? Meaning been intimate with her in any sort of way. He declares his innocence to God, and God says that he is aware of Abimelech's innocence, and he also tells him in verse 6 that he, God, is actually in a sovereign way keeping Abimelech from sinning against him. He's like, I'm preventing you 
from sinning against me. This is, this is actually pretty amazing. And so God is, is stepping in and preventing this pagan king, this outsider, from sinning against him in this terrible way. And he says, you are innocent. You are a man of integrity. But if he doesn't return Sarah, God says that he is a dead man. And we learn what this means. It doesn't mean that Abimelech's going to drop dead. What this means is God closes up all the wombs of his wife and his servants so that they will no longer have any offspring, so that Abimelech's name will die out. His legacy's gone. He's a dead man if he doesn't return Sarah. But not only does he return Sarah if Abraham doesn't pray for him. So Abimelech has this dream. He doesn't just wake him and go, well, that was a weird dream. I'm going to go on with my life. He doesn't do that like some of you do. You have weird dreams. You're like, that was weird, right? He doesn't do that. It says, instead, he continues to prove that he does fear God and has the integrity because it says that Abimelech rose early in the morning and went out to tell people about this. So he didn't just wake up and go, well, that was a weird dream and sit down and get some breakfast and scroll through his Instagram feed, you know, and then go, I'll get around to that today. No, it says he rose early in the morning and he went out and told people about what had happened and what needed to be done, right? This is a crazy story if you really think about it, but I want, uh, but what I want to know and what I think you probably want to know is why in the world would Abraham do this? Why would he lie again? Verse 11 says, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God in this place. And so they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham, why did you do this to Abimelech? Make him almost a dead man? Well, I thought there was no fear of God in this place. I mean, can you believe the irony of this? I mean, consider it for a second. Abraham lies. He almost ruins this guy's lineage because he says they don't fear God all the while Abraham thinks this, his actions are proving that he doesn't actually fear God. He says, you don't fear God, but he's the one who is not fearing God and his actions are proving it. Right? All the while, the actions of Abimelech prove that this pagan king actually fears God. Abimelech, though an outsider in God's kingdom, is a God-fearing Gentile. And Abraham, the one who's going to be a blessing to the world, is the one who's afraid. But what's interesting is he doesn't rebuke Abraham. Abimelech doesn't. He doesn't argue with his story. He's like, well, that's a lame story. He just accepts the reasoning and he gives Sarah back. But Abimelech doesn't just give Sarah back. He goes way beyond that. He gives Abraham protected access to sojourn in this land. You looked at that in verse 15. It says, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So Abraham just wronged, guys, the most powerful person in the land, and he almost put an end to this guy's heritage, to this guy's family line. And what's his response to Abraham? It's grace. This guy doesn't even know God. It's grace. Abraham gets Sarah back, and he gets protection in the land. But guys, this wasn't the climax of the story. This wasn't even the conflict. The conflict is what's going to happen to Abimelech. Right, so he gives Sarah back, but that's not enough. Abimelech needed Abraham to pray for him, and what does Abraham do? He comes and he prays for Abimelech, just like he was supposed to. And when he does, the sovereign Lord of the entire earth, who had shut up all these wombs of Abimelech's people, reopens them. Guys, God heals them. God is Lord over the womb, even. 
He's Lord over their wombs, and it's through the prayers of Abraham that Abimelech is restored and lives, and God heals the outsider. That's what you see here in this story. And I'm just curious, I mean, do you ever feel maybe in your life, maybe like Abraham or maybe like Abimelech in a way, like, do you ever feel like you've really screwed up so badly, so badly to the point of no return, that you've made such a mess that you look at your mess and you go, there's no way anything good at all could come out of this mess. I mean, look at what I've done. Like, there's no, there's no hope for me anymore. You've made such a mess of things that there's, there was no way in your mind that anything good could ever come of your circumstances. Guys, I mean, people have failed a lot in life. People have made a mess of things, and they've still seen huge success come out of their failure and weaknesses. Um, I was just learning this week. There, the guy, you guys know this, the guy who invented the Post-it notes was actually trying to invent an adhesive, and it failed. And they somehow figured out, oh, we can make post-it notes, right? Post-it notes. They've like saved your life, haven't they? Post-it notes. That was a failed attempt at something else. Or the guy who invented bubble wrap was actually trying to invent 3D wallpaper. Did you know this? Not a good idea, apparently. But who doesn't love bubble wrap? I mean, like just popping those things is, is incredible, right? You can be having joy for hours, right? Or the guy who invented Play-Doh was actually trying to invent a wallpaper cleaner. It didn't really work that well, and now, I mean, think when you were a kid, and look at all the fun you had as a kid because someone failed at something else, right? I mean, we can look at situations like this. This might be interesting to some degree, but more than interesting, these are just small life examples that show us how failures and messes can turn things for good, ultimately. But guys, even more so with God, right? You guys, God doesn't just try to, to figure out what he can do with the remnants of a failed life that you've had. God doesn't look at a mess you've made and goes, all right, what can I do with this? I'll do something with it. I'll try to brainstorm and figure something out. That's not what God does with our messes in our lives. God, if God is sovereign, meaning that he is intimately at work yielding his power in the world in order to accomplish his plans, his purposes, his ways, then you and I are never in a situation where it's too late, where nothing good can come out of it. God is sovereignly at work in your mess this morning. He still is. And maybe you've made a mess because you're a bit like Abraham. Maybe you fear others to the point where it just directs and drives your decisions and values and you would just call yourself, I'm a big people pleaser. It affects the, the entirety of how I live. Um, Ed Welch, who's a, a counselor, has written some books. He said, it is true. What or who you need will control you. What or who you need will control you. For Abraham, it was fear of death. It controlled him. So much so that actually says he's been planning this scheme ever since the moment he left his dad's house back in Genesis chapter 11. He's been planning this whole thing. Guys, Abraham learns something here, at least we hope, that God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign in the world, even in opening and shutting wombs, then there's no need for you and I to fear other people because he alone is the God that we should fear, that we should have this reverence for. But for Abimelech, the outsider, his fear of God is only growing, and we're going to see that here in a minute. But next we see the second story of Ishmael and Hagar in chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. If you guys remember, 
the promise that was given to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12 was that he would have children. So this has been like the main tension of Genesis all the way up to this point. Is he ever going to have a child through Sarah? Right? Is this ever going to happen? And the first few, few verses here are really powerful. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. You see God marvelously at work here. It emphasizes it. It's like, as the Lord said, as the Lord promised, as the Lord said. God did it. He said he was going to do it. He did it. What did he do? They finally have this kid, right? Which is really um, kind of interesting because it's thrown in here at like a really weird part in the story. This is like a miraculous birth. Like this doesn't happen, right? It's, but it's stated here in these first few verses just sort of matter-of-fact-ish. It kind of reads like, oh yeah, and by the way, um, Isaac was born. But anyways, moving on, it kind of like, it's just setting the story. It's the setting to another story. It's not even the story. It's just setting up the story. It's really interesting. And so the story is that when Isaac was three or four years old, 16-year-old Ishmael does what Sarah was worried was going to happen. Ishmael looks at her and he laughs. The 16-year-old punk teenage boy, apparently, looks at her and laughs. Not like, oh, haha, Sarah, that was funny you did that. It's a mocking sort of laugh. And, and, and Ishmael uh, does what she was worried about. He does what his mom did back in chapter 16 when Hagar sort of puffed herself up and looked down on Sarah when she was pregnant with Ishmael. And this really upsets Sarah. She asks Abraham to send them away, and God comes to Abraham and assures him that he is going to protect Ishmael, he's going to remain faithful to him, but that Isaac is going to be the promised son. He recommits to Isaac. And so here's the tension in our story. What's going to happen to Ishmael now that it's obvious that he's not really needed? What's going to happen to him? He gets sent off into this wilderness. And so Abraham gives Hagar some water and bread. Not fancy at all. Maybe it could have been done more than that. But he gives her water and bread, sends them on their way to wander in the wilderness of Beersheba, which is actually a pretty important place because um, this, or a really hard place because in Beersheba, water was really hard to come by. You couldn't find water that easily. And uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever experienced something like this, but we take water, having water for granted, right? You can go to any faucet, just turn it on, drink from it, okay? But in, in a, if you've ever been out camping or if you've ever been backpacking, right, where you're not gonna have a good water source, you have to ration your water. I don't know if you've ever been to a point where you ran out of water, you're trying to figure out how you're going to get it. If you've ever been in a spot like that, there's a real fear. There's a real hopelessness, a real panic that sets in. And so here, Hagar eventually runs out of water, and she puts her 16-year-old at a distance away from her under a tree for shade, and she waits until Ishmael and her die. She literally says, I can't watch. I can't watch my son suffer and die. It's a, it's a grim scene. It's actually a scene of sheer hopelessness, you guys. These people are no longer needed. They're no longer wanted by Abraham and Sarah. They're pushed to the curb. What's going to happen to them? And it's really beautiful language here in, the, in, in, in this narrative, especially in the Hebrew. Hagar, it says, refuses to see her son die in verses 14 through 16. She actually says, let me not look on the death of my child. She refuses to see her son die, but then God shows up in verses 17 through 19, and he says, look, 
he shows her her salvation. Look down, it says, then God, what, opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She was at the end of a rope, she was hopeless, can't even watch. God shows up, open your eyes. Look, it's beautiful. God saves Hagar and Ishmael when they thought that there was no one even there, when they thought no one was even watching, when they thought that all hope was lost, when they thought that no one could hear them, God hears the cries of the boy and he saves them. And what was once thought to be the place that was going to be their death sentence, God turns that place into the land that they are going to live in and thrive in forever. It's really crazy. So they were on their last leg. They were holding on to their final strand of hope. And what happened? God saved them. God shows up on their last leg, their last hope. I read uh, this week that there is only one blockbuster left in the United States, okay? And it's in Bend, Oregon, right? Just one more reason why Oregon is better than every other state (laughs) out of all the 50 states, right? I, if you wanna know one thing about me, well, not one thing, but one of many, I love blockbuster, I do. It's a national treasure. Right? It's a, a national landmark. It's one of our greatest pastimes. I love it. I used to work at a blockbuster in high school, and uh, this is what you used to do back in the day. You would say, hey, you want to watch a movie tonight? And you get together with your friends, and you're like, let's go to the blockbuster. And you'd show up, and you could just spend hours in there just hanging out, socializing, whittling down your choices to one. It was an all-night affair. It was, it was really amazing, and, and I, abs- I absolutely loved it. I loved working there. And guys, now we're down to our last hope, right? Um, <laughs> We're down to the final strand, okay? The future is looking bleak. So come on, bend. You can do it, right? But I'm wondering, have you ever been there? A block, not a blockbuster, but if you have, that's great too. Um, you know what I'm talking about then, right? But have you, have you ever been there? Been where Hagar and Ishmael are, right? Maybe you feel like no one has need of you anymore, right? That you were abandoned, Maybe you're trying to survive on your own. You're in a place where you think that no one sees you, that no one is listening to your cries for help. I mean, this morning, I mean, this probably is some of you for sure. Do you feel like an outsider in life? Like you're going through something so dark, so terrible, like your depression is so great, your anxiety feels so out of control. Your grief is so thick that as you look out on the rest of the world, it just appears like everyone else has it all together and they're all having so much joy and fun in life and succeeding and you're just on the outside looking in. You're like, I am an outsider just in life right now. I'm, I'm on my last leg. I'm down to my last hope. Gosh, the, the, God shows up to Hagar and he says, lift up your eyes. And what happens? She sees the source of her salvation. She saw what she needed. She saw the water that could sustain her and her son for another day. Guys, in a similar way, I want to tell you this morning that you who feel like an outsider, that if you feel like you're on your last leg this morning, I want to offer you not a glass of water, but the water of life. 
the water of life, to, to come to this morning, and not just to get by for another day so that you'd be thirsty again, but to come to the water of life and to become an ultimate insider where there's this wellspring of life that just springs up in you day after day, even when you feel like you're in the midst of a desert. Guys, when you fast forward in your Bibles to John chapter 4, you see that Jesus was actually waiting by a well for another woman, a woman who was an ultimate outsider in her society. She'd had so many husbands and so many terrible things that she could only even go to the well in the high noon part of the day when it was hottest because no one else went to the well at that time. So because it shows you that she was an ultimate outsider in her community, And she comes there and Jesus says to you, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. And I would give you water that would cause you to never thirst again. I am that living water. I I am Jesus. That's, That's who I am. That's what I do. That's what I offer you. And you might be shutting your eyes this morning saying, I can't watch anymore. There's no hope for me. And I'm telling you, No matter if you're at the very end of everything and you're like, I have nothing left, I'm telling you, God is saying, open your eyes and see how Jesus is the solution to your hopelessness. He's your salvation this morning, He's your hope. He doesn't just leave you there, guys, He comes and He gives His life for you. And so, no matter where you're at, if you feel like you're on your last strand of hope, Guys, I'm telling you, that's actually a spot where it could be your gateway to experience resurrection this morning. That last straw that you have is potentially the moment where you could experience the greatest hope and provision you've ever longed for. But the last story, you guys, is that we see our everlasting God brings peace to the outsider. Verses 22 through 23, we're back to Abimelech. And he shows up on the scene with the commander of his army, Fickle. I'm just going to call him that. I don't know if that's how you say it. But they have this sort of like mini international summit meeting here. And what is the agenda of the meeting? Guaranteed peace. Why, just think about this, why in the world would Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, a powerful king, why would he want to make peace with a sojourner? you think about that? He seeks Abraham out and he's like, hey, let's make peace. Why does he do that? I mean, Abraham's in his land. He doesn't have as much. Why would he do this? Well, you get your answer in verse 22. He comes to me and says, God is with you in all that you do. Abraham, God is with you in all that you do, so swear. Pinky promised me, right, that you will deal kindly with me. Let me just ask you, what has changed since that first story? I mean, when he gave Abraham Sarah back and he allowed him to be in that land, I mean, he could have done this then. Like, what's changed? Well, all we know textually is that this miraculous birth of Isaac has happened. And so somehow it's obvious, uh, Abimelech knows, I have this sojourner in my land, he's a hundred, just had a baby, okay? So obviously God is with you right? That's the only thing we have to attach ourselves to here, that God must be with you in all that you do. I've heard about this birth, that God is with you, and I fear God. And if God can do that, then I want peace with you, because he's your God. 
right? And so Abraham says he swears, but he goes, hey, but there is one hang up. There's one issue. Um, there's a well that I dug that your people stole from me, all right? And uh, Abimelech's like, hey, I didn't even know about this. I'll give it back. Again, this might seem really random and unimportant to you, but again, they're in Beersheba, right, which is just where Hagar and Ishmael were about to go thirsty and die, right, because of a lack of water. And so getting this well back was, was a source, a sustenance to actually having life and thriving in this place, but more so, this would mean that Ishmael and Hagar would have access to this well forever, because it's Abraham's, that's Ishmael's dad. And so Abraham takes these sheep and oxen, he gives them to Abimelech, right? Then Abraham sets seven ewe lambs from the flock apart. These were seven, uh, ewe means that they were very young, they were unweaned female sheep, which doesn't mean much to you unless you harvest sheep or whatever the term is, right? But meaning these were good sheep, right? These were spotless sheep. These were sheep that could be raised to give birth to a lot more sheep. These were nice sheep, okay? But then verse 32 gives you the climax of the story. They make a covenant at Beersheba. It's a covenant of peace. Guys, Abraham is guaranteed peace and prosperity as he sojourns. Abimelech and the commander of this army are guaranteed peace with Abraham and God. So what does Abraham do? Well, he does what every good Oregonian would do. He plants a tree, right? I mean, look at that. And it wasn't even Arbor Day. You believe this? I mean, what a great guy, right? He doesn't just plant any tree, though, you guys. He plants a tamarisk tree, which was a tree that symbolized fertility, it symbolized prosperity. Guys, he plants this tree that has tons of branches, tiny little leaves. It would grow to about 30 feet in height, and it would provide tremendous shade in the midst of all the heat in this area. So you could drink your well water under the shade of this tree. Talk about not just the thought of peace, but the experience of peace. But it's this tree that would be a mark or a symbol or a sign that God alone is the source of Abraham's prosperity. That's the point. This tree was a symbol to the world that it was because of God that Abraham has done well in this place. Abraham didn't fear God. Abraham feared man and God saved him anyway. Abraham doubted God and God still gave him a miraculous son. God is with him, even though he's an outsider in this land as a sojourner, even though he is an outsider, he is the ultimate insider. That's what this tree represents because he has God. The everlasting God is his God. He's the ultimate insider, even though he's in the midst of this land being an outsider. But guys, but through this ultimate insider, Abraham, God brought peace to these God-fearing Gentiles living in the Philistines. He brought them peace through these seven ewe lambs, these spotless, fertile lambs. Guys, this morning, you might feel like an outsider like Abimelech, and God is showing you how true and how real he is, maybe even in this moment. There's a sense within you, a sense of reverence or awe of God that's coming over you. And it's important for us to see that our main problem, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, is not that there are people in this world that we don't have peace with, that you think you need peace with. Our main problem in this world is that you and I do not have peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. We just don't. 
But guys, God sent Jesus, who was the way better Abraham, the one who never feared man, or fe- but feared God only, the one who never lied or tricked his way into anything, the one who never doubted, and the world saw that God the Father was with him in everything that he did. Jesus was the ultimate insider. He was the Son of God, right? The ultimate insider, who became the greatest outsider ever, and he did so in order to make peace between you and God this morning. But guys, Jesus didn't just make peace with us and God by handing God the Father seven ewe lambs. That's not how he did it. We get this guaranteed access, this guaranteed peace, consistent, constant, unbreakable peace with God because Jesus himself offered himself as the spotless lamb of God, as a sacrifice for our sin to God, and it's his blood, the Bible tells us, that makes peace between you and God. It's the blood of the Lamb of God. It's the blood of Jesus that brings that peace to you this morning. The ultimate insider became the outsider so that you and I this morning who are outsiders might become ultimate insiders. To have God as our God. Well, how in the world does this practically change your life? So what? You might be sitting here right now genuinely saying, well, I'm a Christian. And uh, this sounds like you're talking to people who aren't Christians. I definitely am. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I really hope that you would see how he's inviting you to put your faith in him, that you would ultimately know God and experience God. That invitation is there this morning for you. But guys, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean this doesn't apply to you at all. It actually applies to you so radically. I want you to see, not only does it apply to you, it actually reshapes every single thing about you. I want to tell you about my, my little sister. Her name's Christy. She's not so little anymore. Early 30s, has two kids, okay? But my sister has lived with a learning disability her entire life. And so I, as her older brother, got to watch her grow up and people make fun of her and tease her and call her names, call her stupid, stuff like that. And uh, she, my gosh, she was in high school and had the learning ability of like a fourth grader. But I've never seen someone work harder at school in their life. She's actually graduated high school. She graduated college, okay? But my sister has a huge, compassionate heart for kids with learning disabilities, she, she wants to work with them. She works with them. She wants to help them. She wants to see them succeed in life. Let me ask you, why do you think that is? You go, well, duh. Like, it's who she is. Right? It's who she was. As when I go to um, meetings with other pastors or church planters, you know we actually do have meetings, Right? When I go to these places and meet people that I've never met before in my life, I'm blown away when I sit down at a table with someone who pastors or is wanting to plant a church in a tiny little rural town of like less than a thousand people, okay? And I look at them and I'm always baffled. I'm just like, why would you want to do that? And I'm just being really honest with you. Like, it doesn't mean I don't love those people, but I just go, I'm like a city boy. I got to be around people, okay? Corvallis is pretty small, even for me, but I got to be around people, okay? I literally look at these people, I'm like, I don't know how you do it. You want to be doing that? Like, you want to live there and do that? And I'm, I'm not being mean, it's just how I feel. 
But why in the world do you think those people want to do that? Well, it's because they grew up there. That's like their life. Um, I have a, um, one of my best friends is, a, is an African-American pastor up in Gresham, okay? And he pastors an all-white church. And he has a huge heart for the black community, like huge heart for the black community. He desires to see them benefited, to see those societies and families change from the inside out, to see some systemic injustice transformed. Why does he have that heart? Why? Because it's who he is, right? He's been through it. He's been called the names. It hasn't stopped. Year after year, his daughter just came from school like a month ago being called the N-word up here in Gresham. Like, this is his life. I've had many Mexican friends, especially when I was living in Southern California, and their parents came to this country when they were either babies or they weren't born yet. And they, 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 they look around at people and they have a huge heart for other immigrants in our country. Why? Because they've lived it. They've been through the hardship of it. They've been through the pain of it. So they have the compassion level for that. I could go on and on. Do you see my point? Guys, knowing who you are, knowing where you've come from, it'll radically reshape your heart to love and care for people in very specific ways. My point is that there is a fundamental underlying truth that this story gives to you that will change the way that you see the world and it'll honestly change the way that you live. Chapters 20 and 21 don't just plant a tree in Beersheba, they plant a shady tree deep in your soul. What's the fundamental truth that changes everything, that changes the way that you even receive this story this morning? It's this. Fundamentally, guys, you and I are not insiders. We were all outsiders. Every single one of us were outsiders. I don't care how long you've known Jesus. I do care. But I mean, if you've known him your whole life, you're like, I've never even known a time. You weren't born into this world as an insider. You were born into this world as an outsider when it comes to knowing God and having the, him be your God, the ultimate insider. All of us were outsiders. Guys, and Jesus carried his cross outside the city and died on a lonely hill so that you and I could receive his grace by faith and do what? Become insiders by the peace that he made between, between us and God with his blood. And so if you are fundamentally an outsider and the bed you make every day is the memory that you were an outsider and Jesus brought you in, then you will have a huge heart for outsiders, for, for people who aren't like you, who are on the outside looking in. It could be the people who this morning are just looking around, like I said, they're so depressed, they're so anxious, they're so filled with grief, and they feel like just an ultimate outsider of life. You'll start caring for those people. Or maybe it's just people who sit or stand in a room like this. You notice them, and you pursue them. Or maybe it's refugees, people who don't have homes. Or it's for the poor, or those who are suffering or those who don't look like you, or talk like you, or play like you, or those who sin differently than you do, or for those who struggle with different things than you do. Guys, knowing where you come from shouldn't cause your heart to be closed off to people that you feel like you've left behind. What will happen is if you remember this, that you were an outsider and God's brought you in, it'll widen your heart for the sake of their benefit and ultimately the sake of their salvation. 
Guys, knowing Jesus and experiencing the peace in the shade of the tree that his cross and empty grave have placed you under, that'll recalibrate your heart on a daily basis. To have a heart for peoples and people groups and cultures, people near and far. And they are outside looking in. Um, in this region that we're reading about, there's two seas. There's a dead sea and there's the Sea of Galilee. Did you know, fun fact, they both have freshwater inlets. They're both fed by freshwater sources. But only one of those seas actually teems with life. Did you know this? It, why is that? Because it has an outlet. It, it feeds something else. That sea is the Sea of Galilee. Guys, the Dead Sea actually has way more fresh water that ever flows into it. Way more than Galilee. But the problem is everything stagnates, shrivels, and dies because it has all intake and no output. Guys, God doesn't create Dead Sea Christians. He creates Galilee Christians. Because fundamentally, we all know that we were outsiders and we were fed by another source and therefore we care for outsiders. We feed them with that source. That's what you see happening here in the Genesis story. Guys, God doesn't bless Abraham for Abraham's sake. He blesses Abraham for other people's sake. He doesn't bless you for your sake. He blesses you for other people's sake for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the outsiders, and you will be filled up with compassion for the outsider when you remember that you were an outsider. Guys, we all were. So praise God that he is a God of the outsider. Father God, this morning as we examine our lives, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would refashion us into people uh, who function like the Sea of Galilee, Lord. People who care for others, who don't forget who we once were. God, I pray you would grow our compassion level for people who don't know you. God, for people who maybe feel like they're an insider and really, in the eyes of you, they're an outsider. God, I pray you'd bring them in. God, I pray this morning you would just draw people to yourself, every one of us in this room. God, breathe life into us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.